the band this morning. That was awesome. Especially Danielle, thank you. That was great. Um, awesome. Well, welcome. Wow, my mic is hot. <laughs> Good morning. Uh, welcome to Resonate. If this is your first time here, uh, we are a church for people who don't have it all figured out because we don't either. That's very evident when you come in here, especially last week when we had a slide the entire time with a blatant uh, typo on it called reconstruction, <laughs> not reconstruction. Um, so yeah, we'll show we'll show you our cards. We, yeah, we don't have it all figured out. Um, we are kicking off a new series. Last week was our first week in it, and this week uh, is our second. And what we're doing is we're moving through our infographic, the thing that's so tired and we hear every single week. Uh, what we're trying to do is reconstruct it. Uh, and basically what we're finding in, in this cultural moment in 2018, uh, one of the, the biggest themes, if you listen to any kind of cutting edge podcast, anything like that, if you're in the know, we see this pattern of people who are deconstructing their faith, which is a glorious, beautiful thing to do. Hear me out on this. This is not an anti-deconstruction series. This is like, we need to deconstruct, but we always need to find a way back. Because it's one thing to tear something down. Anyone with a sledgehammer can tear a building down, right? But it takes a really special, loving, and caring individual to knock that building down with the intent of building something better in its place. And that's what we're gonna hope to do as we move through the infographic and reconstruct. So we're gonna pull apart what's there and then we're gonna put it back together. And hopefully what we put back together is gonna be stronger than we ever were in the first place. So the big thing with today is we're talking about service. I'm gonna sit here and lay some real Christian guilt on you. No, I'm kidding. Um, I'm gonna sit here and I'm gonna talk about service. And then afterwards, immediately following, um, where's Sean? Sean, can you raise your hand? Sean's gonna be in the lobby. And then Chelsea, my wife, uh, who is blonde hair and bubbly and you can't miss her, will also be in the lobby. Um, and I will be in the lobby. And basically, if you want to get involved in our setup and our teardown, which honestly, I'm gonna tell you that's the easiest window in. It's, you get here early, you help set up the tables, the chairs, the communion tables, sound equipment, all that good stuff. Um, and in the process, you get to know the people that are sitting around you, because a lot of people come through this avenue of service. So Sean's going to be leading that, and he'll give you the rundown really easy. It'll take like 10 minutes. He'll show you how to put everything away, all that good stuff, um, or maybe not, but to, how to take everything out. Um, Ron puts everything away, and Ron would kill me if I gave that away. So. Um, <laughs> That's happening. I'm going to go through what it takes uh, to make typos on our slides <laughs> uh, up there at the AV booth. And uh, David's going to be with me as well, who uh, is faithful in doing the slides for us. Um, and we'll be in the lobby as well, and then we'll make our way up there. And then finally, Chelsea. And I'm gonna, I've gone, look how I've kind of built this. I've gone from sort of the easiest window in to kind of what's going to be one of the more difficult but most rewarding places to serve, and that's in our children's ministry. I don't know if you guys know this, there's like nine kids in that tiny little room back there. <laughs> and it's busting at the seams. And what she's done to transform that space is truly remarkable. You just take a little walk through there and see what we've done with a green room that's usually used for just like changing out of costumes in this theater space. It's really, really cool. Uh, but the deal is, we need help. And we need it in a big way. And it's not that bad, okay? It's once <laughs> a month, and the children are adorable, and you get a cookie if you go in there this morning. I'm not lying. So she made care packages with all sorts of cookies and stuff for you. If you go, please do not break her heart. Somebody go in there, even if you don't want to serve. <laughs> Just go in there and grab a free cookie, OK? Um, so that's the lowdown. That's what we're going to do immediately following the service. Um, but here's the deal. We need to deconstruct what it means to serve and then build it back up. And we're going to do that in a couple ways. 
Number one, we're going to talk about this guy named Paul, who is the ultimate reconstructor. And then we're going to end with talking about a story about the Golden Gate Bridge, right? Because how those two are going to go together, even I don't know. We'll find a way. Um, but first of all, so what deconstruction is at its core, and we do this with all sorts of things. If you look at like the progression of television or theater or anything, any entertainment uh, medium, what you see is when something emerges that seems completely new, and it's like, oh, I, I, this is a fresh thing that's happening. Like when hip hop first came on the scene or when rock and roll first happened, all of this stuff seems like, oh my goodness, it's brand new. But the deal is almost nothing that seems fresh like this is really new. In terms of music and mediums, it's most likely stolen from another culture. But in most cases, what these artists have done, and this is always the job of the artist, is to look at something and pull it apart to its base level to figure out how these building blocks work. And then they can use that to build something that seems brand new, but it's using the same ingredients that we've used all along. And Jesus does this with our faith like crazy. He always offers a better way. When he tears something down and he says, no, 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 you've heard it this way, he also includes, but I tell you this, right? And so what we are doing in progressive Christian circles is a lot of time we're just walking up to the Bible and to scripture and to things that we have held dearly to. And we're tearing them down like a little kid with a big Lego thing and we're running away without going, this is how you reconstruct. My wife and I are uh, raising a little puppy right now. His name is Baloo, he's adorable. He's also a menace. He's a terrible, <laughs> terrible thing. Um, but he's crazy. And through hours of uh, YouTubing the dog whisperer, I'm now a YouTube educated dog trainer, uh, I know that if he does something, like he bites something or he's chewing on something that he's not supposed to, I can't just tell him no. I have to tell him no and give him something else. Right? I have to say no to this, right? It's offering a better way. Now, here's the most profound thing I will say all morning. This is your theological takeaway. If I love Baloo enough to do that, God must love you at least as much as I love my dog. <laughs> that is your <laughs> theological takeaway. God must love you at least as much as I love my dog, which is a whole lot, right? But at least that much. He's never going to tear something down in your life without operating in a new, fresh way and giving you something better. That is the good news. And to do that, we're going to have to talk about uh, this gentleman named Paul. And Paul is this central figure in the church. And his name wasn't always Paul. His name was Saul. And he has this convergence experience. And he's this immense character, person of history, all that good stuff in the Bible. And you really cannot ignore him when you open up the New Testament, he's written over a third of it. He's this absurd man, and he is also the ultimate reconstructor. So I'm gonna go through the story of Paul today and look at how he reconstructed his faith and how that's good news for all of us. Before we do that, let me pray, and then we'll launch in. Lord, I am um, I'm struck with uh, how incredible you are at reconstructing and rebuilding. Um, and in a culture where it seems like everything is just being torn down, uh, whether we like it or not, painful or good, I pray that you would breathe life into your church. This is an institution that is on the way down. And it's important that we're honest when we say that in spaces like this. It's also important that we save it. 
And God, we recognize what you're doing and how you're moving, and we want to pay attention, and we want to follow you. Amen. All right, so um, when I first got to seminary, uh, I took a New Testament course, and the professor begins his, uh, and I took two classes from this professor, he began it with the same way each time. He began with this beautiful dream that he had once had, right before he, be- he died, he'd gone to heaven, and when he got to heaven, he looked around and he saw all the saints, all the big, there's Jesus, there's Paul, there's all of these people, and he was able to go to them, and he was able to ask them questions and talk with them, and, and actually figure out what they meant by this, this, and this. And it was this glorious thing. When he woke up, he realized, as I'm moving into this, I'm joining this grand tradition of these saints that have proclaimed the gospel or the, the course of history. And then he would embolden us. He would say, so you, too, are now joining that grand history. And I held on to that. Uh, and I went through seminary. And as I did, I began to hear nothing but Paul, which is really interesting. Nothing. Paul. When you get into a Southern Baptist seminary like I was in, the only thing they want to talk about are the letters that Paul wrote. And so it began to get to the point where I too would have this fantasy, where I would, I would, I would be in heaven and I would be looking upon the saints, and then I would promptly walk up to Paul, and here's what honestly I wanted to do. I wanted to hit him right in the mouth. <laughs> right? Like, I heard so much of this man. And here's the deal. Scholars will point you to the fact that almost every single major heresy that's happened over the last 2,000 years is from a misinterpretation of Paul. He's very difficult to understand. Here's some of Paul's, uh, we're going to call these the golden oldies, just just major hits. Here's the first verse that he says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. She must be silent. (laughs) Paul had never met my mother. Moving on. Uh, Slaves, submit yourselves to your masters with all respect. Not only to the good and to the gentle, but also to the cruel. Yikes. And finally, next one. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Now, these are what are called, what scholars call, clobber passages. Clobber passages. Hold on to that. Because what Paul is saying in these things is often taken wildly out of context, and it's weaponized, and it's used to clobber people down. Paul is the easiest target for this because he writes so sporadically, so all over the place, and he contradicts himself all the time. And so what people can do is they can arrive to the scripture, and because we stuck these numbers and breaks into the scripture as we tried to organize it, they pull out the individual line, and they show it to you, and they go, look, it's right here, plain as day, black and white, in the text. But what we know, if we, le- if we read this book carefully and not just literally, is that All of these quotes have a larger context. They're a part of a bigger story. And the easiest way to defend against the words of Paul, hear me on this, the easiest way to defend against the words of Paul is with the heart of Paul. You have to know who this man is to understand why he's saying things that are so ludicrously hurtful. Let me just do a little deconstruction for you to just show you that these passages, I can't I cannot prove them wrong. I'm not going to claim that I can. But I can help, okay? Doesn't disprove that they're in there, but I can help. Here's the deal. That wives submit to your husbands is actually a part of a two-part verse in Ephesians. Do we have that verse, David? The Ephesians 2-4. Nope. Sorry. Um, That's coming up. Basically, that that wives submit to your husbands is a part of a verse in Ephesians, and that's Ephesians 4. But then you go to Ephesians 5, and you see that Paul is completing his thought, and he calls the husbands to both submit to their wives as you would the church. 
basically saying, lay your life down for her, right? In the same way as that, lay your life down. And in a patriarchal society, where in census, like if there was a census taken, women would not even be counted because they did not count. Does that make sense? I mean, we're looking at a history right here that's insane towards women. And yet here's Paul saying, no, 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 you should actually lay down your life for these people. I can't erase that one. He did say women should be silent, but actually he didn't say that. That's from 1 Timothy, and we now know from the Dead Sea Scrolls and other early scholars that that was not actually his voice. Doesn't change the fact that it's in there. <laughs> but he did not say that, right? So we need to understand who this man is to understand these difficult passages, because I promise you, if you're new to this faith and you open up these books and you start reading, you're going to find some weird stuff. <laughs> but that's why we have these communities, because we look at those weird things and we say, yes, Yes, it's in there, but it's in there for a reason and a purpose, and it actually has some beauty if we can only look at the bigger picture. Just like Little Baloo, there is always a better way, right? We can tear it down, and then we can build it back up. But to do that, we need to look at what Paul says about this thing called the body of Christ. Because for Paul, it's all about this body of Christ. So we find uh, Jesus usually talks about this kingdom that he's coming to proclaim, and within that kingdom, Paul is proclaiming this body of Christ, which is an odd metaphor, right? But it's the best one we have to work with, so we're going to roll with it. <laughs> it's the body of Christ. We are all one. We who are many are now the body of Christ, and we belong to one another. These are the words of Paul, and he uses that phrase in Christ 164 times over his eight letters in the Bible. 164 times. He seems obsessed with this idea that we are somehow within Christ, Right? And what we do when we look at that is we kind of look at that as like we're inside the literal Jesus, right? We're all in Christ. But to, to understand this, we have to rethink the way that we think about this word Christ. You see, that's not Jesus' last name. <laughs> Shocker. It's not Jesus Christ. It's like Jesus of Nazareth or Jesus, son of Joseph. That, but Jesus, the Christ, is actually the more accurate way to call out Jesus. Because Jesus is the Christ. And the Christ is what happens when let there be light. I mean, Christ is around from the very beginning. It's the movement of God that is always making things new. And that is Jesus's job. And so what Paul is saying is we are all in that movement. We are all in Christ. But how do we get there, right? How does Paul emerge? Paul never met Jesus, the physical Jesus, right? He's not one of the disciples. And in fact, Paul has a very interesting story. So Paul used to be called Saul. That's the way he was born, okay? So just quick letter switch, and now I'm a new man. No, but uh, Paul was Saul, born Saul. He was born outside of Jerusalem to a well-off family. And at a very young age, Paul, Saul, shows his true colors. It's going to shape the rest of his life. And what he does is he goes to his parents, and he says, I would like to train at the school of Gamal. Now, we don't really have anything like this in our culture, but the, and, and this is a really rough example, so forgive me, but it's the only thing I can really equate it to. We have a system that is sort of like the, the Taliban. <laughs> hold, hold on. Um, this is a system in which like, just fervent young men would sign up and sign their lives to, and they would go to this school, and they would become what was then called a Pharisee. And a Pharisee is an ugly word we have because of the way that they're portrayed in the Gospels. But basically, Pharisees existed because 
the Jewish people were displaced at a certain level. Right? When th this is, a, this is a, a group of people that are constantly being thrown out of their land, displaced, in new spaces that they don't know and that they're not from, and so they can't get back to the temple, which is in Jerusalem, the center of religious life. And so what they do is they create this synagogue system of little temples, and the rulers or the, the, the guys in charge of those little temples were known as the Pharisees. Pharisees had nothing to do with anything that was happening inside the actual major temple in Jerusalem. That was their name. But these were fervent young men who would start studying at like the age of 12 and just learning the law and the scriptures and all of this stuff. And then they would go and they would, they would uh, be in charge of one of these local synagogues or mini temples. Right? And so Paul is on this path. But even more than that, Paul gains a lot of steam in his 20s. He ends up being this rising star. And the school of Gamal looks at him and they're like, whoa, this Paul guy is on to something. Now, this is a kid who has it figured out. Right? He's studying, he's getting A's and everything, he's just crushing. And so they put him in charge of what was then called the Temple Police. Now Paul becomes one of the major players in the Temple Police. It's really important to know here is that the Temple Police was a completely illegal organization because they would put to death or imprison these people that were following this new sect of Judaism called the Way. The Way. They're not even called Christians yet. They're just... The, the sect of Judaism that truly believes with all their heart that their Messiah has come. And Paul, being an orthodox, like, studier of the law and the word, goes, no way, this can't be the guy, and I have to crush this movement. Because this is pure heresy, and this is the tradition of my ancestors, and this is the thing that I love the most. So he goes, and a large part of Paul's 20 and 30-something years are spent oppressing followers of this group, and he gets a really big reputation for doing so. You knew who Saul was if you were a follower of the way, and you were very scared of Saul. Because he wouldn't actually kill you, right? But he could be responsible for you being thrown in prison, and then once that happens, he's kind of sight unseen out of their control. And people would end up getting killed, persecuted, etc. All because Saul was so locked in to the law and the religious order of the day and said it cannot be that God changes his mind and it cannot be this because it doesn't look like it does in my scriptures and I'm a pro at this and I understand. This is an attitude that a lot of us still share. God could po not possibly be doing something new, right? And what we have to remember about Paul, Saul, is that halfway on his way to Damascus, in this city where he was going to go and imprison more followers of the way, he had found out that there were some existing within the temple over there because these people were just hiding in plain sight. They weren't creating new communities yet. They were just inside the temple, right? And you'd kind of be sitting there and you'd be like that one oddball. You're like, I think that Jesus guy was on to something, right? But you were a follower of the way in that case, right? You weren't starting a new community. Everything still existed within Judaism. Here's really a big shocker for us Christians in the room, and especially us Christians who have been Christians for a very long time. Paul died a very Jewish man. It was not his intention at all to try and create a new religion. It was his intention to complete Judaism. He believed so fervently that this Jesus the Christ was the Messiah, and he had come for those people, and even more so, he had come for all the Gentiles too. This is crazy stuff. So how does Paul get from Saul persecuting these people, to literally writing letters to new communities that he's starting chained to a wall 
because he's just in love with Jesus. And the answer is on the road to Damascus in this one moment. Saul is walking down the path. Now, it's funny, we usually depict him on a horse. I don't know where the horse came from, but it's not in the Bible. <laughs> so he's walking <laughs> down the path, and all of the sudden, and he's with these this other two gentlemen who are going to are his enforcers as he's going to go to Damascus, and all of a sudden, this huge, blinding light appears, and it knocks Paul, Saul, over, just completely knocks him out, and he sees with his own eyes, the risen, resurrected Jesus Christ. Okay, the scripture depicts it like this. I think it's one further, David, than the, um, one more, sorry. There, as he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And in this moment, Saul loses his sight and he, he asks, who are you? And Jesus replies, it's I am Jesus the Christ, the one who you are persecuting. Saul then goes into this huge, like, uh-oh moment, which we do when we experience a really big spiritual event. Right? He goes into a, whoa, the bottom has just fallen out here. So he goes to Arabia, and what's interesting about this period in Arabia is we don't have a time limit. We have three days that, that uh, Saul becomes Paul, but we don't have a time limit for how long he was in Arabia, which is great news for us all, because right when he gets out of Arabia, he starts planting churches, and he starts wandering the place just screaming about this Jesus guy. But the good news in that is that there's a flexible amount of space. For some of us, it's going to take a very long time in Arabia before we can come around to these principles and make sense of some big religious event that we've had. And for others, it's going to be immediate. Right? I gotta jump in and I gotta start doing stuff. And it seems, as we read the text, that's what Paul did. So Saul spends three days blind, and a man named Ananias gets a word from the Lord. So this is like, you know, he's sitting in a different town in his living room, and all of a sudden he hears Jesus say, Hey, Ananias, you know what would be cool? You should go and find that Saul guy who's trying to persecute everyone that thinks like you, and you should go to him and you should comfort him. <laughs> now, this is, this is the moment where you're like, God is weird, <laughs> right? Like, why would he ask me to go into the presence of Saul? This makes no sense. I could be imprisoned or worse, because I'm going to have to go to him, and I'm going to have to admit that it was Jesus that sent me, right? You're just putting your cards right all out on the table right away. But he's faithful, and he goes, and he goes to Saul, and, it, and he lays his hands on him, and he said, Brother, Jesus Christ has sent me here to proclaim the good news to you. And when he did that, the scripture describes it like this. Uh, do we have that next slide? And Ananias went to the house and entered it, placing his hands on Saul. He said, Brother Saul, Lord Jesus, who appeared to me on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. Now, that seems really cool, right? I'm blind, now I can see again. But we have to look at this in a really cool, poetic light. See, the author of this book, Acts, is the same author of the book Luke. Acts could actually just be called Luke Part Two. It's, it's meant to be read together. Because basically, Luke outlines the gospel and what Jesus has done, and then Acts, which could be called Luke Part Two, or very honestly, the Acts of Paul, because it kind of just follows him from here. 
But if the writing that we look in Luke is all symbolic and gorgeous and beautiful, and we have the Christmas story, and we have the Easter story, and we have all this, we have to take that same sort of lens and put it onto Acts. What the writer is saying here, he doesn't have to include this line about the scales, but he does it for a very specific reason. You see, in the Christian tradition, in the Hindu tradition, in the Buddhist tradition, in almost every major religion in the world, the sign for transition or newness is a snake. And why? Because a snake sheds its skin, right? So a snake actually physically pulls out of its old skin and becomes something new. And in this moment, the scales falling from Paul's eye are saying, I am completely made new by this experience. I do not have any of that old. I am completely new in Christ. And we see this in Paul because he mentions it like 50 gazillion times in all the letters. He can't stop talking about it. He can't stop talking about how he's transformed by this love of Jesus that came to him, to him, while still a sinner. He can't get over the fact that, like, I was persecuting these followers. I was persecuting this man, and, like, he still, he came for me. If he can come for me, he can come for anyone. And this is what gets Paul into a lot of trouble. He starts six churches over the past. The one place he can't start a church is in Athens, which is really ironic because Athens is the most educated city in the world at this time. And when he shows up with this news of a, a, a fisher, the man with a bunch of fishermen that are following him, all uneducated, and he dies and rises again from the dead, these educated people just are having none of it. So if everyone needs one good failure, Paul does not get his church off the ground. It happens. But he goes fervently and he does this. And while he's doing this, he meets Peter and the other disciples. And he walks in and he says, what do you guys call yourselves? And they go, well, we're apostles. And he's like, why are you apostles? And they say, well, because we have the privilege and have earned the right of being the only people who got to follow and see physically with our own eyes the resurrected Jesus Christ. And Paul looks at them and he goes, hmm, that's me too. <laughs> the arrogance of Paul is really impressive. He walks in there and he goes, yes, I am an apostle too. And they're like, no, no you're not. And they're like, yes, I am. I have seen Jesus. I am, I am one of you guys. Uh, and more than that, he says, and oh yeah, by the way, um, what about, what about uh, busting open the entire door and just letting all the Gentiles in? And they are not ready for this. Peter especially says, no. He pushes against Paul and says, this is not a religion for everyone. And Paul says, you're wrong because he's that arrogant. <laughs> and he wins. And this is fantastic news for everyone who grew up in the Catholic tradition or is still a part of the Catholic tradition. The fact that the Pope is infallible, right? Peter is known as the first Pope. Paul says, you're wrong. He says, you know what? You're right. <laughs> so he gets to win, even against the greatest leader of the day. This is such good news for us, guys. Because this means with any measure of faith, we can begin to proclaim the good news of God, and we don't need to wait around for a credential. We can give the credential to ourselves, just as Paul has done. <laughs> he says, I'm an apostle. <laughs> Gentiles, come on in. And then even more than that, he says to them, ah, well, there's, there's going to be a couple things that are going to hold these Gentiles back. And they're like, Paul, we don't even want them in here in the first place. He's like, okay, but let me, let me run down what's going to keep them away. Uh, we need to get rid of the dietary restrictions so they can eat whatever they want. Uh, and then we need to get rid of the Sabbath idea because they're going to be totally weirded out by that. And then on top of that, and this is a big one, we can't do the whole circumcision thing because these guys are going to come to this as an adult and that's going to be very painful. So he takes away all three of those and says we have to swing this door wide, wide open. This good news is for everybody. And so I meet with a lot of people when I tell them our tagline where we're a church for people who don't have it all figured out 
and we're a church for you, no matter who you are, where you're from, or where you're coming from. I get some ruffled feathers, and I just simply point to Paul and go, listen, listen, he did it first. I'm just copying, and Paul says over and over and over and over again, copy me as I copy Christ. As we look at Paul, we can actually look at a concrete Christian and go, ooh, that's what I want more of. I want to be more like Paul. I want to go out, I want to proclaim this stuff, and I don't want anything holding me back. He begins to move with his heart because of one huge religious experience. Some of us in this room have experienced some really awesome spiritual stuff, but I'm going to ask you really point blank, have you jumped in yet? Because what Paul is saying is that when you experience this stuff and you actually meet this risen Jesus Christ, it's going to cause you to do stuff, to jump in to what God is already doing. And that is much different than the Christianity that we kind of offer up in typical Sunday services, right? Here's kind of an honest deconstruction, right? So I'm going to tear it down, but we're going to build it back up. Don't worry. (laughs) Here's an honest deconstruction of a faith path that is usually handed in evangelical circles. It goes like this. I want you to pray this prayer and mean it. Beautiful. I invite Jesus into your heart. Pray this prayer, mean it. Get baptized, get plugged into a small group, come to church on Sundays, and then get ready for a whole bunch of guilt that's just going to come over you like all the time because <laughs> you're going to think you're not doing it right, right? Now, but here's the amazing thing. We all experienced that, and it was beautiful, right? When we jumped in and said yes, and some of us may not be there, I understand it, but when we jumped in and said yes to this, we were fired up. They're like, oh my gosh, I have found my tribe. I've found my people. This is it. But then what happens is it becomes years of kind of doing the same thing, and we sit and we listen. Look at the way that we build our church services. They are services for people to absorb, right? I'm here to not participate, but I'm here to absorb. And so we sit and we absorb, and we think we need to absorb, and we do, but we think we need to absorb so that we can get enough information so that we can actually start leading things and doing things. And we wait because we've been told by the institution to wait. I'm going to let you know a little secret. We just really like our jobs, <laughs> right? The, the institution will say, hey, like, you're not ready yet to lead this, this, or this because you're not seasoned enough yet, la, 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 la. And some of that is very true and very helpful, and we have those structures for a reason. But I'm telling you, more often than not, they're keeping people held back. They're keeping people in this mode where Paul is completely against that. So we've deconstructed, we've torn that down, we've done the hipster Christian thing. Now, how do we rebuild it? And I'm going to tell you, the answer is service. The answer is jumping in. Rather than just magic words, jumping in. And Paul creates a clear outline for this. He's a man that truly owns his faith. Here's a really mind-blowing thing that I never knew until this week. And even when we studied Paul in seminary, like, relentlessly, I didn't really know this. Or maybe I did, and I just forgot. But anyway, what, what I found out was that Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians, which becomes 1 Thessalonians, is actually the oldest bit of New Testament scripture that we have. It predates the nearest gospel to it by 20 years. It was written in the year 49. Paul this is going to be a shocker, never read the Gospels. (laughs) He did not have those. They were not available. They weren't written down yet. They were passed around orally and stuff like that. But Paul is creating scripture. And as he's writing this, he does not realize what he's doing. 
He is not writing this with the intention of that to get into the New Testament one day. He's simply writing to these concrete communities and saying, hey, you're dealing with this. Here's an answer for that. You're dealing with this. Here's how I would navigate that. And then he's walking around and he's visiting and he's loving on these communities. And he's doing that not out of head and knowledge, but out of heart because he's experienced God and that has caused him to literally leap forward. And what's incredible, even more than that, is he's doing that inside the Jewish system. So what Paul is doing is not trying to just tear them down. He never gives up on them, and he always tries to reconstruct within the system itself. See, some of us walk away from this faith thing because we get hurt, and I understand that. I've been through it. But it takes a brave individual and soul to come back into the doors of the church after something like that has happened. And Paul is doing that work all the time. He never gives up. He has one foot fully planted in his tradition and his family and the people that he loves. And then he has another foot fully planted in this new thing that God is doing. And he is the bridge between both of them. And I'm going to be honest with you. If we're going to be people that live like that, that's going to be immensely stressful. To have one foot in the tradition and one foot in the new is an immensely stressful place to be. It's, you're a bridge. And think about what a bridge goes through all day. <laughs> Just being driven over, walked over, no thanks, no respect, all day long, right? Except for one bridge. And that bridge is called the Golden Gate Bridge. And that's a bridge that I grew up near, uh, went to high school, like right down the road from it. And we're obsessed with the Golden Gate Bridge. If you go to San Francisco, it's like, have you seen the bridge? <laughs> uh, my aunt, who came from the South, uh, we, we drove her across, and she, she was so livid and furious because she thought it was literally painted gold, and she could not get over it. She's like, y'all, I cannot believe that this is red. Like, it, it was just, you know, it was a shocker, right? But not get your head around it. We love it so much, we pay $7 to simply drive across it, right? This bridge is a marvel. It was actually named one of the many modern marvels of the world in the early 2000s. It was built in 1937, and at that point, that bridge was the longest suspension bridge and the tallest bridge, period, in the world. And John Strauss, the guy who was responsible for building it, saw that there was this huge, beautiful chasm, right? If you're walking on that bridge, you are truly looking at one of the most stunning landscapes in the entire world, especially if it's not foggy. But like, if you're walking across, you can see San Francisco, you can see Oakland, you can see Marin County over here, you can see the ocean over here. It's just, it's stunning, it's unbelievable. And what John Strauss said is he looked at this huge passageway, which was called the Golden Gate. He looked at that, and there's a ferry system that are taking people across, but he said, no, no, you know what would be even better is if we had a bridge there, right? And they thought this was a crazy idea. The original estimates for this were about $100 million, which in today's money would have been $9.9 .9 billion to get this thing built. And he comes to the city and he goes, it's gonna cost this much, right? And they say, absolutely not, no way, right? And then he goes back in his little tinkering shed and he comes back and he comes back with a plan where he says, I think I can do this. Now, John Strauss had never built a suspension bridge in his life, in his life. He had merely just studied them and he goes to them and he says, I found a way, there's this new technology, it's a suspension bridge, and we can do it, and if we do it, it's going to be $17 million. And at this, the city gets very, very excited because this is the rise of the automobile, and at this point, people have been having to drive. It would take you over an hour and a half to get all the way around to the Marin Headlands, where if this bridge was there, you would be there in a matter of five minutes. 
right? And so the automobile companies get behind it, and people are literally scrambling to get this thing made. He goes to the city itself, and he says to the people, if you buy these bonds, we'll be able to build this bridge. And there were people that were literally putting their houses up to buy these bonds to get this bridge built. And so John Strauss, he's got all this support, and he comes with his, his original plan for this bridge, and he lays it down, and it is profoundly ugly. <laughs> they look at it, and they go, no way. And he goes, well, what's, what's the problem? And they're like, it's really, really, really ugly, John. It, it does not look good. And he goes, I don't, I don't see it that way. So what they do is they hire a group of rival architects who all have to come together, and they decide on what now looks like the Golden Gate Bridge. And when it opened in 1937, people said it couldn't be done, and all of a sudden, you have, you've got cars driving over this marvel, this miracle. Here's how this relates us. We're going to be these bridges that have one foot here, one foot here. We're going to have to have all of us come together and play a part because we need to care for each other and we can't build this thing without each other. We need the people doing the bonds. We need the construction workers. We need the painters. We need the food service people. We need everything, right? And here's the other thing. When you come to that spot and you, you could go up in the headlands, you could look over that bay, you, you can see something profoundly beautiful. And if you look at the love of Christ and the need for that in a city like this, you look at a problem that is immensely beautiful. And so what we need to do is the same thing where we need to look at that enormous, beautiful chasm and we need to build something that is equally as beautiful because beauty needs beauty and we can do that but to do that we must come together as what Paul calls the body of Christ Paul is so convinced that we can do this this is this is the funniest part all of those churches those six churches there were no more than 40 people in each one of them that's another shocker it's really good news for us <laughs> there is no need there's only 40 people in these communities, but he writes like there is a thousand of them. And he writes because he is literally so convinced that with the love of Christ, even just these 40 people in this community can change the world. He is totally and utterly convinced of that, and he dies convinced of that, having only about 100 followers. If you look at us today, wow. But it takes boldness like that it takes courage like that. And I'm telling you, we're in a, we're in a gross moment, but we're, we're small enough that like, I know a lot of you very, very well, and I'm looking around, and I see some of the most talented people in the world sitting here. This community can do crazy things in this city, but we got to push, and we have to jump in. Is that enough Christian guilt? <laughs> we good? We have to jump in. So we're going to come, and we're going to take communion this morning. Um, and the most important thing you can do is you can fill out that uh, community card with your email if you didn't already do that over there. Um, and also, like, we've gotten kind of lax on this, but please, if you have prayer requests, we'd love to hear from you on that card because um, we really do spend intentional time throughout the week praying um, and getting through this. I want to end uh, with the final words of Paul and what I think is Paul at his absolute best, when the head meets the heart and the experience. And here's, here's that scripture. It says... 
If I speak in the tongues of men or angels but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but I do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast but do not have love, I gain nothing. Final point this morning is that Paul really does see love as the bridge that can bring us all together. And he's calling out all the different wonderful things that are happening in these church communities. There's, there's prophecy, there's, there's a lot of head of knowledge, there's all this stuff, and he's saying, guys, what we really need to focus on, and the only way we're going to get it, is through love. May we love greatly. Let me pray. Lord, thank you so much um, just for this morning, for this community, for everything that's going on. I pray that um, you just bless us as we, as we walk out of this space and truly become an Arrows Out community. Um, as we approach the table, Lord, may we truly remember you, and may we also trust that you are moving and that we are to follow. Amen. So you guys can stand at the front row.